there's a whole litany of changes that are going to occur to the water cycle in large part because the water cycle is heat driven. And if you add heat to the planet like we're doing right now, you fundamentally change that water cycle and we're seeing it. Hello and welcome to CSU Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. I do think the public understands, hey, wow, this is a really long drought and it's really hot out there and something's going on. But the kind of more nuanced learning is is not really there yet. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health and sustainability and learn about their current work and their career journeys. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, Associate Vice Chancellor of the CSU Spur Campus, and I am joined today by Brad Udall. Brad has been a senior water and climate research scientist at Colorado State University's Colorado Water Center for over a decade. His expertise includes hydrology and related policy issues of the American West with a focus on the Colorado River. His work operates at the intersection of water and climate. For instance, Brad was a co-author of the 2009 and 2018 National Climate Assessments and is a contributing author to the 2014 IPCC Fifth Assessment. Brad comes from a long line of water and policy-focused Westerners, and his career has demonstrated a combination of science, policy, and communication about these complicated issues. Brad has an engineering degree from Stanford and an MBA from Colorado State University. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jocelyn. Great to be here. So let's dive in on what you are working on now. As a senior scientist and fellow at the Colorado Water Center, what is keeping you busy? So right now, my focus is on the evolving, I'll call it a train wreck, although that's probably not the right term, frankly. Well, it's evocative. Yeah. The the evolving issues in the Colorado River Basin. And basically, after 23 years of very low flows, which some people call drought, I don't. I call it aridification, long-term warming and drying. Droughts are temporary. This is not. I'm working on trying to figure out where we're going in this system, what kind of science can be presented, how do you present it in a policy-relevant format, and and a lot of little details. I actually spend a lot of time talking to the press, trying to explain what's going on right now in this really complicated basin that, at least to many people, it appears the wheels are coming. And when you say the wheels are coming off, can you say more about what that means? What does it mean that we have this crisis in the Colorado River? So so here's what's happened since the year 2000. The nation's two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lakes Mead, have lost more than two-thirds of their combined volume. They were almost full in the year 2000. They're now about 25% full. This decline has been caused by two things. Too much water use and what now appears to be a permanent decline in flows due to warming temperatures caused by human releases of greenhouse gases. And it's hard to overstate just how important the Colorado River is. It's half the water here on the Front Range. You know, it's almost all the water in the American Southwest. It's 90% of the water for Las Vegas, 50% for Phoenix, arguably all of the water in Tucson, 25% of the water in Los Angeles, it actually gets out of the basin like the Front Range here, but also to Albuquerque and Santa Fe and Cheyenne. It's just, it's really hard to overstate how important this is. And when supplies go down like this and reservoirs drop to unprecedented levels, all of a sudden it gets a lot of attention. How do we make this system sustainable? 
so that's in a nutshell where, where we are and and where we're well not so much where we're headed so th- you speak of these two reasons that there is a crisis in the Colorado River Basin which has just a vast geographic economic cultural social footprint these two reasons that we have these water shortages too much water use and less precipitation coming into the basin due to climate change. What are the policy implications of that? What are we doing to try to fix this problem? Uh, Where are we falling short? Where are we seeing some successes? So this drought, and I don't like that term, right? I already said I don't like it, but I fell into using it. This event started in the year 2000. And from 2000 to 2005, we basically lost half the reservoir contents. And at that point, the federal government stepped in and said, hey, we have no plan for dealing with low reservoirs. We have no plan for delivering less water than promised. All of you seven states get together and figure out a plan for us, or we will, we the federal government will. And so 2007, we had a big plan put in place that was supposed to deal with these declining reservoirs. Post-2005, sort of had some okay years. We had a big year in 2011, actually bigger than this year, I'll note, even though everybody's super excited about this year. We, we have had big years. Big and years in terms of precipitation, you mean? They've been wetter than normal. And, and, and runoff. And yeah. then we had two disastrous years, 2012 and 2013. And finally, by 2019, we have another set of plans in place for how to deliver less water to the users. And just last year, the federal government said, hey, guess what? These two plans, the one from 2007 and the one from 2019, they're not nearly enough. And we need you all to come up immediately with a plan to cut 15 to 30 percent of water use within the next several months. And so this year, there have been all these processes in place, negotiations, mostly amongst the lower states of Arizona, California, Nevada, about how to implement these cuts. There are um, tremendous issues with how this system has been set up in the 20th century and where we are right now. And unfortunately, I would argue that what we call the law of the river is particularly ill-suited to dealing with the 21st century problem like this. And so that's why this basin's been, at least for a little bit, tied in knots, trying to figure out, all right, who's gonna get less water? How do we pay people for taking less? Um, How do we respect all the the, uh, economic activities that are in place, including agricultural uses and cities? And and how, how do we kind of do the least harm to everybody? So that's the process that's in place right now. There's a what's called a special environmental impact statement on very much a fast track. Uh, this whole process will be done in six months, which is unheard of in the water world, where typically three years to do an environmental impact statement is sort of a standard fast track. So, I mean, uh, and what we're waiting on right now is an agreement amongst the, the three lower basin states as to how to share these cuts. And there's rumors actually that they've come up with one, that the federal government's actually not going to step in with a heavy hand, not going to have to step in with this heavy hand and, and implement unilateral cuts. We'll see. Um, and then on top of this, by the year 2026, so three short years from now, we need a whole new operating regime because the current one expires in that year. And that regime's probably got to take us out to mid-century where we think it gets a whole lot warmer, a whole lot drier, and we have even less water than the 20% cuts 
20% reduction in flows we've seen since the year 2000. So it's a pretty exciting time in the Colorado River Basin to be engaged in all of these activities. So let me see if I can recap a little. We have seven states, right, that are that are part of the Colorado River Basin. The lower basin has the three states you mentioned, um, California, uh, Nevada, and Arizona. Did yep. I get that right? And then the upper basin states are, what What are the four upper basin states? So Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming. And that, that delineation of an upper basin and a lower basin goes way back to 1922 when the original Colorado River Compact was signed, which divvied up the river amongst the seven states. Right. So the Colorado River Compact, which just had its 100-year anniversary last year, set in place who gets what among those seven states and at a time when water flows might have been higher than average and obviously at a time when there were much fewer, many fewer people and, and fewer uses of the Colorado River within those seven states. Over time, it has become clear that um, that allocation isn't going to work, in part because of the challenges you already mentioned and maybe in part because it wasn't divvied up appropriately in the first place, given how much water we, we know is, is actually truly average for the Colorado River. So far, so good? Yes, absolutely. Okay. You got Thank it. Thank you. So, and then in, in recent years, as we have seen, I mean, from 2000 to 2005, losing half the volume of those reservoirs must have been quite alarming over the course of five years. Of course, um, you know, as you mentioned, we've had some ups and downs in terms of amount of water in, in them since then. But there have been a, a series of different attempts to get the, the basin states to divvy the water up differently. Think about cuts, think about conservation for cities, think about conservation for agriculture, think about all, conservation for all of the different users. And right now, we are at a place where maybe on the brink of an agreement between the lower basin states to, to at least fix the problem temporarily with another round of conversations necessary for 2026. Did I summarize all of that accurately? You did. You got it 100% right. Great. Um, it is really complicated. And, um, and of course, you and I have had some conversations about this over the course of the several years that we have been talking about um, what a policy a presence at the CSU Spur campus might look like. So I'm, I'm, uh, I can't take credit for having absorbed it all and turned it around in real time. Um, you and I have been talking about this for a while. So speaking of that, with all of the attention that has been focused on the Colorado River Basin in recent years, this has been something you've been working on for a very long time. How does it feel to have so much attention on it now after you have been saying we have these challenges for so long? You know, it's sort of bittersweet, right? I mean, I was one of the first guys that started talking about the risk of climate-induced low flows, climate change caused low flows in the basin way back in 2003, right? when I started working on this issue at that other institution in Colorado of higher education. And, and I would give talks basically to dirty looks, people who didn't really want to believe that humans could change the climate and those changes could really impact our way of life and our water supplies. And now I find myself, you know, basically being right on this. And it's not great, frankly. I, I kind of wish I weren't right. I, I, I'd feel a lot better about our future if, I, if we weren't right. I mean, and I don't want to be a complete pessimist here. I actually think there are really good people working on this. And I do think there's rumors of a solution right now in the lower basin, as I mentioned earlier. 
And uh, people in this in this field are, are they're they're good, they're hardworking, they're well-meaning, and they want to do right by their stakeholders. And uh, and I trust them. So, I mean, there there's good things going on. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm relieved, of course, to hear that you feel that way. Do you think it is sinking in not only, I mean, you mentioned that you've been having a lot of conversations with reporters as as um, at least media attention has uh, turned a little bit more toward these issues. Do you think it is also sinking in with, say, an average resident of these seven basin states or Mexico for that matter? Is it sinking in? Um, maybe sort of by osmosis. I I don't think the average citizen completely understands how climate change is water change, something I've been saying for years. And in your kind introduction, you talked about these national assessments and international climate assessments I've worked on. And if I've learned anything from working on these assessments, they're massive documents. They always have an executive summary. Executive summary has 10 bolded points. And point three or point four on every one of them says, expect big changes in the water cycle. You're going to see more rain and less snow as it warms up. You're going to see earlier runoff. You're going to see more intense downpours. You're going to see more intense droughts. You're going to see crummy water quality because water temperatures will go up. There's a whole litany of changes that are going to occur to the water cycle in large part because the water cycle is heat driven. And if you add heat to the planet like we're doing right now, you fundamentally change that water cycle and we're seeing it. So that part, that sort of intellectual understanding of what's going on here and that scientists have connected water cycle changes to climate changes for over 50 years, I don't think the public gets that. I do think the public understands, hey, wow, this is a really long drought and it's really hot out there and something's going on. But the kind of more nuanced learning is is not really there yet. Do you have some thoughts on how we might as a group of people who care about these things, um, help it sink in? And and why would it be important for the general public to really understand this issue? You know, in the famous words of, of former Congressman Wayne Aspinall, the late Wayne Aspinall, if you touch water in Colorado, you touch everything. You know that quote, Jocelyn. It's a really good quote. Water interpins everything we do here. It's tied to our recreation, our economy, our food. And how do how do we get the word out? I mean, the Spur campus is a great place to start talking about this for sure. I mean, CSU does its job of educating students on a regular basis. You know, over the years I've been at CSU, I've literally given hundreds of talks around the state on this issue. And it's frankly, it's more of the same. I don't think there's any silver bullets here. Um, it's just continuing to talk about what we know and connecting it with what we're seeing on the ground. So as you give those talks and you mentioned feeling that the other folks who are working in this space as professionals are um, thoughtful and smart and hardworking and 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 so that you have some hope there. What hope can we give to the to the general public or what tasks might you assign them um, mm-hmm. to uh, think about um, how they can help bring us back from from the brink of uh, where we are right now with our reservoir levels so mm-hmm. low and our precipitation so low. What can what can a citizen of, of one of our front range cities do? All right. So we're down 20 percent flows in the Colorado River Basin. That water is about half of what we have on the front range because our native supplies here aren't 
just are, aren't enough. And, and so we have these massive, what are called transbasin diversions, namely tunnels, believe it or not, under our mountains that transport water from the west slope to the east slope. So what can people do? I mean, being aware of your water usage obviously is really important. You know, not wasting water. Um, you know, half the water generally in the American West goes to outdoor irrigation of lawns. And, and frankly, I'm not a big fan of lawns anymore. Um, my wife and I converted our outdoor our lawn space to Xeriscape now and use a lot less water. You know, trees are really important in these municipal places because they provide shade for all of us. You know, continuing to upgrade facilities, um, uh, appliances in our homes are, are important. You know, washers and dryers and toilets and shower heads and the like. Historically, you see about a 1% decrease in water use through time in most municipalities. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually adds up over 10 or 20 years and the, the really good story in the American West is how cities have used a lot less water over the last 40 and 50 years. And that's true in Denver and Phoenix and Las Vegas. It's true in Los Angeles. It's true almost everywhere. And it's a lot of it's these incremental pieces that, that individuals pursue that maybe get a rebate for a new toilet. But it's also been some pretty proactive programs like paying people to rip out grass um, in places like Las, Las Vegas. So um, there is hope out there. I think, you know, just being aware of your own water use and trying to make sure that it's not excessive and understanding this is sort of a numbers game. And as an engineer and scientist, understanding the numbers of your own use is pretty important. A similar question perhaps is around agriculture. And, and you know, of course, we can't have this conversation without talking about um, the use of water in ag. And What's giving you hope there around how farmers and ranchers are approaching this problem for the portion of this equation that they control? So, and let's talk about how big that portion is. It's roughly 80% of water use. It's huge. You can't solve this without ag. You know, Jim Lockhead, the general manager of Denver Water, has said all the American Southwest cities could go away and you still can't solve this problem. So, you know, I start in by saying, hey, ag's 80% of the use, it probably needs to be 80% of the solution. And, and this gets really painful, right? Um, the, a number of things have been proposed for ag. And, you know, efficiency always comes up. Can you use, you know, water more efficiently? And the answer is, in some cases, yes. Um, efficiency is a little, a little tricky in that all sometimes newfangled Devices in ag can, believe it or not, actually increase water use. So you kind of got to be careful about that. You know, the, the the fouling word is not a favorite with with ag, obviously, and it really is harmful to them. But you're probably going to see some. And in the lower basin, you may have the the really valuable agriculture in the lower basin is the winter produce that they provide for the American citizenry. It's a uh, it's a 365 growing day season in the lower basin. And so our winter produce comes out of areas like Yuma and just across the border in Mexico in the Imperial Valley. It's highly valuable ag and that should stay growing. They should continue to produce that. But what gets grown in the summer when it's 110 Fahrenheit in, in Yuma and the Imperial Valley is of much less value. Um, and is there a way to not grow as much in the summer and save what could be pretty significant amounts of water without hurting too much the bottom line. 
I think you're going to see some federal investments here. There's been a lot of talk in the basin over the years of crop switching. Can you grow a crop that uses less water and, and it has the same or more income? I, I always like to say, hey, crop switching, great in theory. It's really hard for farmers to practice, right? Because you're asking them to use new agronomic knowledge, new markets, new labor, new transportation, new facilities for harvesting food often. So you're asking them basically change their whole way of doing things. And again, probably some big time federal help here needed to, to see if we can't find some crops that use less water in the lower basin. So, I mean, I, I do think you're going to see some ag go out of production. And I'm, I'm, it does not make me happy to say this, but given the size of this problem, it, it's probably going to happen. But we need to do it in a really thoughtful and sensitive way and figure out, you know, how to get these communities back on their feet after this happens. Is there a way, you know, to take a little bit of water out of a system and keep mostly keep everything in place, keep the economics up and, and not hurt ag too much. These agricultural communities, one of the things worth noting here, they're really tied together and uh, they're, you know, ag's the whole lifeblood of these communities. And so if you take, you know, production out, you hurt not just the farmer, but everybody else that lives there, the labor supply, the grocery store, the seed dealer, the tractor dealer, everybody. And, and if we've learned anything in Colorado, it's that if you do this, be super sensitive about it and, and consider all these other impacts, not just the producer, him, him or herself. Yeah, of course. And true in municipalities, too, that all of these things are connected, but particularly true in smaller, more rural communities or agricultural mm -hmm. communities, that there really is kind of a linchpin that if you pull, the, the, there's a lot more of a impact on the rest of the community than maybe in, in larger cities. So yeah, I have to be very thoughtful about these things. So um, speaking of being thoughtful, can, can we talk a little bit about what it means to do research on policy? So I think a lot of people, if they think about someone who's working at a university and is a researcher, they're thinking scientific research where you do an experiment and there's an outcome and you publish it and you um, move on to the next experiment that takes you one step uh, closer to understanding whatever question you've originally asked. So obviously there's a parallel within policy research, but it's a little bit different. Can you talk a little bit about what, what does policy scholarship look like and mean and how do you do it in a way that allows you to both – advocate for a specific policy outcome without, um, you know, maybe wading into the politics side of it, uh, which as an academic maybe is not where you want to be. Yeah. So I'm a really unusual being in the, in the water research space in the American West for a whole bunch of reasons that I didn't have anything to do with. They're, some of them are kind of fun, but they give me an entree in places that a lot of policy folks don't have. And I'll just briefly mention them because I don't know that anybody could ever reproduce my career. So I'm the great, great grandson of John D. Lee, the founder of Lee's Ferry, the dividing line set forth in the Colorado River Compact between the upper basin and the lower basin. And that's sort of an interesting talking point, which is kind of fun. But probably more importantly is that Two of my forebears, my father and my uncle, were really prominent players in Western water politics in the 1960s and through the 1990s in the case of my father. My father was a congressman from Arizona, 
was instrumental in passing this huge water project in Arizona that's now part of the problem and will be part of the solution to these uh, water delivery shortages that are going to occur. It's called the Central Arizona Project. His name was Morris or Mo Udall. And my uncle was Stuart Udall, former Secretary of the Interior and President Kennedy and Johnson. And both of them actually, frankly, created some of the problems we have today. And 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 both those guys are kind of beloved in the American West, and I, uh, I you know, I inherit that. I had nothing to do with it, um, and they're now sort of fading into history. So it, it takes kind of an older person to remember them. But for a large part of my career, people knew who they were, and and they had a really outstanding reputation for being good, honest people who would listen and, and try and come up with water so solutions. So let me just say that as a beginning place, because both of those, John D. Lee and, and Mo and Stuart, give me just a touch of license to go into places that otherwise some researchers might fear to tread with good, with good reason. Um, and, you know, most of my work's been more on the scientific side, but it almost always has policy relevance. I mean, that's where I've tried to make a, a difference. So uh, one example, recently, uh, a bunch of researchers and I published a piece in Science that talked about the, the, cuts, the cuts that were needed to stabilize the Colorado River system if these low flows continue. And within those cuts, we promoted a bunch of different ideas about how you might do it. Could you cap upper basin water use? Could you put really big cuts on the lower basin? At what level do the cuts go in place? Um, and so this article provided somewhat of a smorgasbord of potential ways to balance the books in the, in the Colorado River. And hence, it's really policy relevant. And we put forth a number of ideas, um, including a discussion about a really sensitive topic in the basin, which is the so-called delivery obligation under the Colorado River Compact that the upper basin supposedly, and I underline supposedly, has to the lower basin. So I'm not positive I'm answering your question here, but I most of my focus has been on climate change and how it's the, causing these flows to decline and how we might respond to that in a way that's you know policy relevant and gives decision makers something to think about. Two other quick comments. Um, you know, a lot of times in the scientific world, man, you write these really dense articles and you're not done when you write that dense article. Unfortunately, the denseness is needed to get it published but then you have a whole secondary job to communicate that to the world at large. And that's a whole different skill set. It's a skill set that I that I like to utilize and think I'm pretty good at. Uh, but that that doesn't happen. You can't just write an article in today's world and think people are going to read it and understand it. You got to go communicate about it. Absolutely. And, and that takes me a little bit to some of the ways in which people can engage in these big problems from a variety of different backgrounds and perspectives. So in your case, you both have done the science, the climate science, and then you do the translation to less dense, more digestible. You are, you mentioned you're talking to press all the time. Not every researcher is going to want to or be comfortable doing that. And so there is another role to play perhaps in taking the science and making it uh, something that that can be appreciated, disseminated, understood, and then acted on 
by the general public, and that's a, a communi- someone who's a communication specialist. And uh, really important to think about how all these pieces might fit together in the different careers that sort of surround the work you do that help to make it impactful. So maybe we can transition to talking a bit about how you got where you are. You have worn a variety of hats throughout the course of your career, uh, trained as an engineer, have done consulting, have worked in uh, the policy space um, for a number of different academic institutions. So walk us walk us backward a bit in time. Um, obviously, you ca- you come by this career path somewhat naturally. You've already hit on that. Tell us how that actually played out. Were there specific factors or moments that that got you where you are now? It's pretty interesting. If you look back on it, you'd think I'd planned this all out, and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, as a as a kid, I liked taking things apart and putting them back together. And I ended up getting an engineering degree from Stanford in in environmental engineering back in 1981, when that was actually not really a a degree. I put it together, kind of delving deep into their course catalog and realizing I could kind of do this, roll this own engineering degree up. And uh, I, I actually finished high school here in Colorado. My parents were divorced. My mother was an old Colorado gal. She moved to Boulder. Um, and from Boulder, I went to Stanford, got an engineering degree, came back, actually spent some time programming computers for a living, just because that was a, I could see this being really important. This was around the time the first personal computers came out. And it seemed like that was the skill you just wanted. I wanted to have a technical background skill I wanted to have. I then went to work for an engineering consulting firm in in Boulder, and we worked on issues of the South Platte and um, the Snake River and the Colorado River and the Arkansas. Um, uh, And we would get contracts from things like Colorado Water Conservation Board and the National Marine Fishery Service and the Bureau of Reclamation. Over a number of years, I, I became the managing partner at that firm. And after a while, it just felt like, a 20-person firm was great, but I didn't want to spend my life there. My wife and I had always wanted to live in the mountains, and I took a job, believe it or not, running a land trust in Eagle County. And the interesting tie to what I do now is that those land trusts work all the time with ranchers and farmers and producers trying to conserve land. And that actually gave me at least some insights and introduction into the challenges our ranchers and farmers have, because Literally in Eagle County, which is Vale, um, the, the really big, cool open spaces are on the ranches, they're privately owned ranches. And so we were pursuing conservation easements on these big properties. I then came back down to the Front Range and uh, took a job for 10 plus years at the University of Colorado running what's called the Western Water Assessment, this big NOAA National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration funded effort at at CU called the Western Water Assessment. And that's really where I learned about climate change and a lot more about meteorology. Uh, By the time I was done at 10 years, I was the principal investigator on that. And uh, somewhere in there, prior to moving up to Vail, I actually got an MBA from CSU. I left left that out. And it was that MBA, believe it or not, that oddly got me the job at CCU because I had to have this second degree. Um, you know, would not have been hired with just a bachelor's. And uh, so I was there for 10 plus years, uh, moved over to the University of Colorado Law School where I ran their, their environmental center there for uh, about a year, the Getches-Wilkinson Center for Energy 
natural resources and the environment. And that was not a great fit. It was super interesting. And it actually gave me some good insights into policy and law. It was a terrific year. It just wasn't a, a great long-term fit. And then I ended up with at CSU that they were interested in my climate change expertise, which at that point was pretty well developed. And that's where I that's where I am today. Um, and it's been quite a ride. I don't know that anybody could duplicate that. You know, if I had to do it again, I'd get a PhD in some field more likely than not. I would make sure that that field, at least for me, was broad enough to be able to combine my interest in communication with my interest in science and, and the deep dives that you have, have to do. Um, but that's a that's a short version of, of kind of my life and how I got to where I am today. So I'd like to dig in a little on some of the transitions in particular, because I think those tend to be, they, they give us a bit more insight into how it is that people's careers develop the way that they do. Were there specific people that were uh, instrumental in, in changing where you were, you know, engineering as a starting place and then transitioning to law and business and all. Were there people that, that sort of came in and said, hey, you know, you really need this additional skill or mentors who who shaped kind of how you were thinking about, about your career path? You know, my time at the University of Colorado was really terrific because I had a number of mentors there that sort of would guide me through what I needed to learn. And oftentimes these were, you know, PhD folks who were super smart and I could go ask them about things that I felt like I needed to know to run this million dollar a year research program called the Western Water Assessment. And some of them were in the big NOAA lab in Boulder. Some of them were over uh, on campus. So professors there's a deep well of knowledge at the University of Colorado on water, much like at CSU, and and some really great folks. Uh, Balaji Rajagopalan comes to mind at CSU. Marty Hurling at NOAA. I'm going to offend somebody because I leave them out. Robin Webb. I mean, there are a whole bunch of names I can pull off. Roger Polwarty. I mean, just all these cool government and university scientists who really helped me along and gave me good advice. And at the law school, Charles Wilkinson, who's really well known, a water lawyer, natural resource lawyer, was just terrific to me there. And at, at CSU, Reagan Wascom, of course, was just really fantastic. And, and he's the guy who brought me on. So, um, I mean, yeah, other people really make and break your careers and, you know, help you. And it's sort of up to you on some level to figure out how to politely ask people to help you and to you know, give back too. I mean, that's, that's the nature of all friendships, right? It's not just a one-way street. So, but mentors in my life have been super important. Are there some specific pieces of advice that stuck with you that you remember from those folks? Mm. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, surprisingly at at the Western Water Assessment, where I gained a lot of my knowledge on water and climate, I also gained a lot of knowledge about working with decision makers because that program that I ran was one of about 10 similar programs around the country, each one focused on three or four states. Western Water Assessment had Wyoming and Utah and Colorado. And I had people really help me understand 
sort of how to interact with decision makers and how to engage with them and make science relevant and query them in a way that you know made made your research all all the better and i i will say there's a nice dovetail there with my family history too you know you i grew up with you know a guy who served in congress for 30 years and politicians know how to ask if they're good they know how to ask people for what they need and how they want it and how to listen um, and so my father, in some level, was pretty helpful in this regard, too, as well as just kind of my general family dynamics of growing up in this political family where you sort of intuitively understand how things get done in the policy realm. Sure. And also understand the power of being able to communicate. Yeah. In fact, you know, interestingly, I never thought I was a particularly good communicator until you know, somewhere it happened at the University of Colorado. Mm-hmm. I think I just got thrown into having to communicate. And it's always been a skill that so many people in my family are really good at. I always thought I was kind of crummy at it. Um, I had a brother who was just outstanding. And my father was, I mean, he's written books basically on how to communicate. And I always just thought I was sort of illiterate and tongue-tied and, you know, I- inadequate in the overall scheme of things. And I sort of learned how to do it and ultimately surprised myself. And I tell you, if I had any advice to college kids nowadays, you know, I was sort of this nerd engineering student and undergraduate, you know, doing worksheets and problem sets and, you know, would occasionally write a paper. And it, it turned out the skills that I didn't get a chance to focus on, the writing and the speaking are, you know, became enormously important later in life. And I kind of wish in college, I'd had a chance somehow to to utilize those and to burnish them. And it was only later that I figured out I was actually pretty good at it. Yeah, that's interesting. And you beat me to a question that I was going to ask around what advice you would give to young people. And so to your to your mm-hmm. college age self, so, some of that advice might be to focus a bit more on the communications. What about even younger? What about your high school self, 15-year-old? You know, I bet you even nowadays, communication is more, far more important in high school than it ever was when I was there. The ability to talk um, is it's really important, you know, to talk in something that are like complete sentences and to have, you know, to think things through ahead of time. This communication skill, it's not, you have to work at it. I mean, you know, originally, and I still do, when I give presentations, I don't just slap something together and give it. There's a lot of thought that goes into these. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's kind of midnight oil to figure out how to give a talk that, you know, flows logically, that makes people think, that makes them laugh occasionally, because then they'll pay attention if you've got them laughing, that challenges their assumptions, that presents stuff in a way that's pretty easy to to digest and then, you know, recapping it all at the end. None of this stuff is rocket science, but it does take, it takes preparation and practice to get it right. Yeah, that reminds me or brings to mind the work that we did with Gary Nell, the CEO and chairman of National Geographic, when he was our keynote at the Water in the West Symposium a few years ago with the idea that we were bringing in someone who could talk about storytelling which might be kind of outside of the water sector per se, but a very important component to doing work in water, yes, but in in general. And I, I found his comments on what 
makes an effective storyteller and an effective story really compelling and, and, a, and a set of skills that all of us could cultivate to help us get done what we want to get done, regardless of what the, you know, your base discipline is. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really important to remember always that people remember stories. They rarely remember numbers, but they'll remember a story, right? This is the humanity in all of us and how history gets passed on. It gets passed on in stories that make sense, that flow logically and maybe have an edge to them or something quite memorable. It's not 15 million acre feet. People don't remember 15 million acre feet. So um, I'm going to just have a few last questions for you. One is, um, is, is there a place where you would direct people to find out more information either about your work or about the Colorado River or about water in the West in general? Well, I recently built a website with a number of colleagues called ColoradoRiverScience.org. It's a wiki-based website that has all kinds of information on the Colorado River, and it's it's a little wonky, but um, it's a good place if you're sort of interested in different facts uh, on on the river. Um, of course, the Colorado Water Center and all the folks that are there, John Tracy and Nancy Grice, you know, are terrific, and it's their job to help people, um, you know, get engaged in in water at at CSU. Um, you know, those are at least a couple of different places. You know, I always make myself available. If people want to come directly at me, I'm happy to talk, email, whatever works. You're very generous with your time in that way and your expertise. And and I know it's, I appreciate it. I know others do as well. So um, the last question I have for you is our spur of the moment question. Mm-hmm. So it's apropos of absolutely nothing. Are you a music lover? And if you were going to have to pick one genre to listen to only, what would it be? Oh, interesting. I don't feel it's fair to ever ask people to just pick a favorite album or if they can only listen to one album, but maybe a genre. A genre might be doable. You know, I'll tell you a secret that nobody knows. The course I struggled the most with at Stanford as part of my distribution requirements was an appreciation of music course. And I barely got out of there with a passing grade, which is not not true of any of the other courses I took. I'm sure not. I have stumbled upon um, your Achilles heel. I apologize. So the one thing that course did for me was appreciate classical music and I don't listen to nearly enough of it, but I find it really enjoyable. And, you know, we, we listened to just some classic, I, I would, I was taught to appreciate, you know, I mean, stuff that anybody knows music just will laugh at, you know, Bach and Beethoven, you know, uh, amongst others, you know, I, I like all different kinds of music, you know, and it's mostly rock and pop nowadays and, you know, a lot of 70s era stuff, 80s era stuff. But there's rarely a piece of music that I don't like. Let me let me say that. Um, okay. And Fair yeah, enough. You, you, yeah. We can leave it there if you want. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, thank you very much. Um, and thank you very much, Brad, for your time today. Really appreciate this conversation. We could keep talking, I know, for a long time about all of these, uh, all of the work that you're doing and, and um, uh, both on the on the scientific side and also on the communication side. But we are, um, you know, absolutely thrilled and honored to have you both at CSU and as a guest here on Spur of the Moment. So really appreciate it. Thank you, Jocelyn. 
The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well.